1: encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and also 104.9 FM. Uh, We're also live streaming, of course, as we do every week to womentowatch.net. Uh, and that is Women, the number two, watch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and uh, I'm so incredibly excited and honored today to have uh, a guest with me. Actually, she's not in the studio, she's calling in, but uh, a woman who has a truly remarkable story. So I want to get right to introducing her. Uh, her name is Kate Roberts. Kate is the co-founder of Maverick Collective, which is a philanthropic organization investing in the health and rights of women and girls in the developing world. Um, This is an initiative that is co-chaired as well by Melinda Gates and Princess Mette-Marit of Norway. Uh, Kate is also senior vice president of PSI, which is one of the world's leading global health nonprofits. Kate, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Susan. I'm so thrilled to be with you.
1: I am so grateful. I, I can't imagine how incredibly busy you are with all of the uh, the work that you're doing and the many organizations that you contribute to. So I'm very grateful that you're taking time today to share your story with our listeners.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure, Susan. My pleasure.
1: Are you calling? Are you in D.C. today? I am. I'm waiting the snow. Yes. Like everybody.
2: <laughs> we are we're
1: gearing up i guess we're all going to be stuck in tomorrow which sometimes is a good thing
2: well yes or no but yes <laughs> there you go we're gearing up we'll
1: figure it out as we always do we will we will we have no choice um uh, so kate you know i re, you and i had a conversation uh, about a week ago just to kind of have a pre-interview um, call and when I uh, went to do my research and really dig into your story, there's just so many things uh, about your life story that that are fascinating to me um, and and even your beginning. So I want to start there with your your childhood growing up in um, the English town of Southport, which is near yeah. Liverpool. And uh, I'd love for you to just kind of give the listeners a, a sense of what your childhood was like, um, and, and a huge part of that, I guess, was your the fact that your father was a captain on cruise liners and cargo ships, and it took you to many, many fascinating places.
2: Yes, it did indeed. Well, yes, I was born in Southport, and Southport is known as a, a Victorian fishing village, Um where Victorian people used to come and, and bathe in the ocean, um, and I had a very fortunate but simple upbringing, um, just one brother and a very strong mother and father. Indeed, my father is, was a sea captain, and we grew up my brother and I grew up at a very early age, sailing around the world on a supertanker, visiting many countries uh, by the time I was 12. We'd pretty much been to the four corners of the earth on the ship. So uh, that really gave me my first grounding experience of how different people live in different parts of the world. But we had lots of adventures um, with all, all sea adventures. We had a stowaway, and we hit an iceberg and <laughs> had to be rescued off the ship a couple of times. Oh, my god! So it was it was um, it was a very interesting upbringing, and I, I transfer that now to my own daughter, where I believe that travel is one of the best things that you can do for your children. It certainly put me in the right direction, let's say.
1: Yeah. You, um, I, I wrote a quote that your dad said, which I think really sums up um, a big part of who you are. He said, she has always been her own girl with supreme confidence in herself. Um is that, would you say that, that supreme confidence, which, which others have described about you, did that come about because of the, the adventures and the travel and the upbringing, or do you think it was something that was just kind of innate in you and uh, you know the, the adventures came along?
2: I think it's a combination of everything. Um, I believe you learn so much from your parents. And I remember my mother saying to me every single day as I was walking out of the house, every day she would say to me, Kate, remember who you are. Um, And that's really what I remember my mother mostly for. She would always tell me that I can do anything I put my mind to. I do the same now with my daughter. And so you really do listen and learn from your parents. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the travel... The very early exposure that we had to travel um, also builds your confidence. Um, And we didn't just travel on the ship. We also traveled with a caravan to different parts in Europe. My my family exposed me to different languages very early on. And, you know, I was truly cosmopolitan. We didn't have a lot of wealth, but we had wealth in our experiences. And that also gives you confidence. Um, My parents did what they could to give us a good education. Uh, that's also really important. And but uh, to a certain extent, I do think you're you're born in that way. My my brother is very different than I am. Mm-hmm. Although he's a very full, he was a fighter pilot, and now he's a pilot for the commercial airline. So we we've all taken some form of travel and difficult jobs on. Mm-hmm. Um, you are a product of your parents, and uh, you can. Le- I think we can all learn a lot from that.
1: Yes, I, I agree. Um, you know, as the listeners will hear as we go through uh, a, a bit more about your life story and the work that you're doing, um, you know, again, a lot of the things that you have taken on uh, by yourself have um, warranted an extreme amount of confidence. Do you have? And, I'm, you know, when I ask this question, I'm, I'm assuming the answer will be yes, but um, are there days when you have self-doubt, um, even today, and, and if so, what do you do to move through those moments?
2: Mm-hmm. Of course, we always have self-doubt, and I'm constantly asking myself, am I making the right decision? Um, I try to use my people skills as much as I can, where I'm really trying to put my my feet in somebody else's shoes and so I constantly worry have I offended this person (laughs) Um, have I done the right thing for a a team member Um, so I I think people skills comes into this a lot Um, but uh, yeah I mean we all have self-doubt we wouldn't be human if we didn't but at the same time No is a full sentence, and you can get a lot of no's, but you'll get also a yes, and you've just got to persevere Mm -hmm. and and have a very clear vision in mind and a very clear uh, mission, and and then you know you can do the you do the best that you can That's and, right. and, and you learn from your mistakes And I have made quite a few mistakes I can assure you
1: yes um, so as you um, I wanted to to move on a little bit to um, your school years and uh, you finished high school at the age of 16 which is actually young um, I think most uh, children in the United States today are a little bit older than that coming out of high school Um, and you decided to study hotel and catering management. One of the things, as I was reading through all of my notes and and your bio, is how many different things you did indeed try. And at that time when you decided to take that route, what were were your aspirations at that moment?
2: I think I've always been a service-orientated person where I really love people. I love people. I think people do so many incredible things around the world, and I've always been drawn to people, to learn from people, to do things for people. Um, And so I thought that the hotel business could be a good beginning block to that. Mm -hmm. I also saw it as an opportunity to continue with my travel, which I'm very passionate about, always have been. Um, And so I decided to study that, and it was a good decision. I was only in the business for two years. Um, but I learned a lot, especially about people and being of service. So in, in
1: 1993, um, you made a decision to go with your boyfriend to Moscow. Uh, and yeah. that is when you helped to launch the Russian version of Cosmopolitan magazine. How did How did you land that job?
2: Well, <laughs> I landed the job because I was... Sitting with my boyfriend in Holland. We were living in Holland at the time. And I had actually learned to speak Dutch whilst I was living in Holland. I, when I tend to go to countries, I feel like it's the least thing that you can do is learn the language. So I had learned Dutch thinking that it would serve no use to me whatsoever in my life. <laughs> so was I wrong? And we were sitting watching a documentary. When my boyfriend had asked me to move with him to Moscow, I, w- I was not sure at all about this move. And we were watching this documentary, and it was uh, about this man called Dirk Sauer. And it was talking, and he was Dutch, and he was living in Moscow, and he was running a company called Independent Media. And he was talking about his plans to launch Russian Cosmopolitan magazine and continue to grow the Moscow Times, which was the English speaking newspaper at the time in in Russia. And I thought to myself, well, I can do that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I, I should go to Moscow and organize a meeting with Dirk Sauer and speak to him in Dutch. And I can probably convince him to hire me in some capacity. And essentially that is what happened. I agreed then to go to Moscow. We were there a couple of days. I picked up the Moscow Times. I found Dirk Sauer's phone number, and I just called him up. Uh, and spoke to him, indeed, in Dutch. And, of course, that was the whole reason, obviously, that I learned Dutch, because it landed me the job.
1: Yeah. By the way, you speak five languages. Is that correct?
2: I do, not all fluently, but I do speak Dutch fluently. And now a little Russian, some Romanian, some French.
1: Yes. Well, that's wonderful. And, boy, does that come in handy when you're traveling, right, to just have a little bit of that knowledge?
2: I think languages are also such an incredibly important thing for children. Um, however uh, strange the languages are, they all come in handy. I use all my languages all the time.
1: And does your daughter, um, does she speak several languages as well? Have you had time to teach her?
2: Yes. Well, she speaks, um, she speaks a little Spanish, uh, which I felt was important living in, uh, living in the States. And um, as she gets a little older, she's only six um i will be definitely exposing her to different languages yes
1: wonderful um so after your um your stint at, at um cosmopolitan magazine you moved into the advertising industry and um you landed a job with Bates is it sachi and sachi
2: that's it bates yes. sachi and sachi
1: yeah mm-hmm. um and really at this time and this was i guess was this 1996 just to kind of get the
2: Uh, Ninety-four.
1: Ninety-four. Okay. Um, And at that same time, you um, opened up a yoga studio. And were you uh, the co-owner with with someone else?
2: No, it was an aerobic studio, and I was the full owner. Okay. And I did it. I had started the aerobic studio. It was called Kate's Aerobics. um, Whilst I was still at Cosmopolitan. And had started to build my clientele Um, and then when I moved over to Bates Saatchi and Saatchi who which by the way was um, the CEO was Dutch so it was also how how I got the job I think yes yes Um, which just goes to show how important languages can be um, so yes, I had I, I had already opened it, and it was already successful when I moved over to Bates Sachi and Sachi.
1: Okay, so this is you know um, this next story you know I want you to share with our listeners is has was truly a pivotal moment in your life um, and and an amazing uh, amazing story. But while you were there, um, you had left the yoga um, excuse me the yoga studio one evening. And a car pulled up, and you were literally uh, kidnapped by the Russian mafia, who was looking for money. Um, I don't even want to attempt to try to describe what that moment was like, and the um, the next forty five minutes. So, why don't you tell that story for our listeners?
2: Um, well, briefly, because we don't have enough time, that's exactly what happened. The, um, some members of the Mafia had visited me at the aerobic studio a couple of times. Um, it was very normal then, and I believe it is still quite normal now, uh, especially for foreigners. If you have a company in in Russia, then you tend to have security services, and if you choose to work without security services, there are consequences. and At the time, in 94, this was just very normal, Um, and it's really how businesses operated. And of course, I was small fish compared to other big companies, but I was um, obviously receiving dollars, and that piqued the interest, and before I knew it, I was indeed dragged into a car and taken to the woods and threatened by the two gentlemen, who weren't such gentlemen, uh, picking me up, and um, and I had to escape. I actually jumped out of the car once we'd gotten, driven about 40 miles outside of Moscow into the woods, and it was the dead of winter, and I was just in my aerobics clothes. I had given my driver the night off. I normally wouldn't have done that, but um, it was for Sunday, I believe. Um, And it's a very simple way to get around Moscow. You just stick your hand out, and any car will pull over and take you to where you want to go. Mm -hmm. A bit like our Uber these days, but in those days, it was not so uh, sophisticated. And it was a very unfortunate situation, and I almost died. Um, I actually banged my head as I jumped jumped out of the car um, in the woods. Um,
1: While it was moving, right? The moving car. (laughs)
2: Thing, yep. Yes. Yep. Um, and, yeah, I, I then, of course, tried to find a way to get back to Moscow. But, of course, I was in the middle of nowhere in, you know, 20 feet of snow, mm. um, as it was always in, in Russia during the winter. And I was just lucky, lucky-ish. Um, a car appeared, the little headlights. And I was I stopped the car and got in I was suffering at this point from hypothermia and uh, He drove me back, but of course I wasn't able to pay him so that became another situation It was just very traumatic mm, um, yeah. It was very traumatic, yeah. but you know you learn, you you become stronger from mm-hmm. the situation and Yes, the rest is history. The rest is history. Well, you know, that again, that's
1: just a, a very quick um version of, of what happened to you and, and what of course I find so remarkable is that um that experience and that evening did not set you back. Um you know, you continue to move forward in in the work that you do and you've you've done it in such an incredibly um uh, determined way, I will say. So you know, I want to move on. One of the things that you decided to do, um, shortly after that, um, and I guess this was while you were still with Bates, Sachi and Sachi, was to compete for an account, um, developing the country's first national HIV AIDS prevention campaign. Um, and I love that you said, you know, this was something you wanted to do just because you thought it would be really cool, you know, to, to compete for this. And, um, I was wondering if that that decision was really kind of the catalyst for you where you realized that you were much more interested in pro bono work um and, and philanthropy than you were in some of the uh some of the work that you were doing for the advertising agencies when you were working on accounts, um as you describe as, you know, things for young people that perhaps were not so good for them.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, let's just take a step back for a second because this happened uh, This happened in Romania, not in Russia. And I think it's important to point out that a couple of other terrible things did actually happen in Moscow, in- including um, our agency being raided by the tax mafia. About um, 30 gunmen raided us, pulled all the computers out of the walls, held guns to our heads, and at that point we had to flee. And that was actually much more scarier than when I was picked up by the mafia and taken to the woods because that was, according to them, when we had broken the law and not paid enough tax and so on. So that moment I definitely said to myself, if I get out of this unscathed, I'm going to look at my life in a very different way Mm. because I did have to flee Russia, uh, cannot go back and you know, there was a big price on our heads. Um and so coming back into the UK I then was after a period of being in a safe house, was then sent back to Romania for bait for a bait such and such a job with the agency one four one, which was the below the line agency of Bait such and Suchy. Mm-hmm. And um and that was indeed when, after being there for a while, I was approached by PSI to, as you said, Susan, compete on this this uh, piece of business that would stop AIDS coming into Romania. And I did indeed think, oh, okay, well, that's very cool, and maybe we can even win an award for this work. Uh, We did a fantastic presentation and um, I, I, at the time, was dating a Romanian rock star and I got him involved in coming up with a pitch. I think I got them to come into the conference room and perform (laughs) Um, (laughs) to then find out after winning the account that actually it was a pro bono account. (laughs) We weren't (laughs) going to get paid. Right. Um, But I'm, I'm so glad I did that because I truly believe that people come into your life for a reason. And um, I was very impressed with a man, his name is Michael Horsher, who approached me to do this work, and it was life-changing. It really was. Uh, Using all the techniques that I had learned in advertising, as you said, selling cigarettes, bubble gum, booze, and toilet paper, uh, and trying to come up with sexy campaigns uh, to get kids to do more of that, um, (laughs) this was actually the real meaningful work, and I, I really enjoyed using my platform uh, and my marketing knowledge to further these goals. So, yes, that was when I actually took a trip to South Africa um, purely to have a rest. I was really juggling my for-profit and my nonprofit work. And um, I went to South Africa, and that's when I saw the real destruction of HIV-AIDS. Um, mm-hmm. It was on every yeah, uh, I
1: love how you, how you said, you know, you, you described that moment as as realizing and seeing the beauty as well as the sorrow of South Africa all in one.
2: Indeed. I mean, anyone who's been to South Africa, it's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. South African people, huge smiles, such jovial people, but such sadness. There, was, There was not one family that was not touched by AIDS in some way. Mm. And so and you know, I looked down at my shoes actually at one point and I realized I was wearing Gucci loafers mm. and I just thought to myself, This is ridiculous. You know, why do I need these shoes? These expensive shoes. Right. When yeah. so much is going on and, and at the time I thought I needed to move to South Africa and hand out condoms. That's what I le- left thinking. Wow. so that
1: was that was an aha moment for you. You know, you're you You were really soul-searching, and not only did you leave there, but you left your boyfriend at the time,
2: right? Yes, I did. Um, I think it was on the outs anyway, but yes, I did. And I cut my trip short to South Africa and came back because I was so excited about this revelation that I'd had, and I wanted to do it in the right way. And so I called a meeting with Michael and found out that the work that I was doing in Romania with PSI was going on in many different countries around the world, and he suggested that I take a greater role within PSI to help put a human face on the work that PSI was already doing mm-hmm. so that we could start to diversify our funding and, um, and yeah, develop a, a support mechanism to expand on the work that we were already doing, and to expand the organisation. Right. So that's what happened.
1: Okay. And so um, in in 1999, you moved to Washington, um, and you you landed a meeting with Bill Gates. Which, by the way, tell me how that happened. How did, how were you able to to get a meeting and, and sit down with him?
2: Okay. Um, well, I uh, when I came to Washington, I started my own thing called Youth Aids under the the umbrella of PSI. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw the great work that PSI was doing in delivering health products and services uh, to those living at the bottom of the social economic pyramid. But I saw a gap and an opportunity to really put this human face on the work. Um, And so I started Youth Aids and uh, Youth Aids um, led various campaigns Um, using a lot of celebrities and um, forming a lot of public-private partnerships and doing a lot of cause marketing and we were able to raise about 30 million dollars to really innovate around HIV-AIDS and it actually led to what is now um, one of the leading prevention tools of HIV in male circumcision. We used some of the Youth AIDS money to pilot an an intervention in, in Zambia Um, that encouraged grown African men to go and get circumcised because they would be 60% less likely to contract HIV. So this fund that we were building funded things like that, that traditional governments would not pay for in the early innovation stages. So that led to being recognized by the World Economic Forum as a Young Global Leader. They had this program where they choose uh, leaders under the age of 40 that are contributing to changing the world in some way, and right. I was super humbled and honoured to get that um, opportunity. And due to the work that I did with the World Economic Forum, one of my fellow YGLs uh, worked directly for Bill Gates, and Bill had said, "I want you to introduce me to you know 10 or 20 YGLs for me to have." meetings with. I just want to, you know, meet with some bright minds. Mm -hmm. And I was the chosen one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's wonderful. It was was quite funny because I was nine and a half months pregnant at the time with my daughter. And uh, I actually gave birth the next day after meeting him. Um, Oh, my gosh. Wow. It must have gone well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you held off.
1: You weren't going to miss that meeting. No, right. definitely not. Kate, what, you know, in reading, um, I love to read quotes uh, about people. I think it, you know, often gives a real insight into who people are. And um, people in the corporate and entertainment industry have said that you are successful because you are relentless, obsessive, business savvy, and insistent that donations are properly spent which I think, mm-hmm. you know, that first of all, the, you know, the first part of that um, talks about, you know, really your your personality and who you are. And then, the, you know, the last piece of that, you know, being very insistent that the donations are properly spent, I think is so incredibly important um, when we talk about philanthropy. And clearly, you know, the work that you did with Youth Aids and, and being able to um, to get that, Number uh, that much money, rather, um, is it, not easy. It's, it's difficult. A lot of people that are um, looking to raise money for different nonprofits and organizations are always looking for advice on what someone who, uh, like you, has been successful in doing. What is your philosophy for that?
2: Mm. Well, it is very important that you talk about where the money is going and how it is spent. And there is no philanthropist out there that will not agree with you more. Um, I think it's very important to be transparent. I I think it's important to, right from the get-go, talk about your challenges. Um, And at the heart of all philanthropy, it's impact, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to have impact. And The notion behind very smart giving, you know, impact philanthropy. There's different ways of giving. No giving is bad, right? All giving is good. However, the more strategic you can be in your giving, the greater impact that you'll have. And so I believe that a philanthropist um, or anyone that we interact with, whether it be a corporation or a celebrity ambassador or um, an individual or a foundation, the more knowledge that they have, the more effective they will be as advocates and we all want the same thing in this case i want to lift girls and women out of poverty that's been my life my life dream and my life's work and i on a day-to-day basis look for champions to help me do this in a really smart cost-effective way and i've always believed that everybody should play the right role you know if you are a philanthropist the, the place to be is at the at the beginning innovation part where traditional donors or, um, you know, tr- institutions, they don't necessarily come in at that stage. So that's where a philanthropist can have the most impact mm-hmm. and also learn the most from that experience. You know, if you're a celebrity and you really want to use your brand to create change, you know, listen to the experts. Um, I think listening is such an important tool um, that if you can engage and listen and learn and then act, um, you're going to be much more effective. Mm. Um, and, you know, when when we can define also what it means to be an effective philanthropist, our impact will be amplified and the different sectors will work better together. The private sector, civil society, like NGOs, like mm-hmm. us, um, and governments all need to play their part in the right way and you know obviously celebrity ambassadors can help in their way with their brand they can open doors that we are unable to and I think it's about being authentic you know I am indeed extremely passionate about what I do I I don't just believe that by investing in women we're gonna have a different world it's a proven economic fact that mm. if we invest in women yes we will strengthen local communities we will strengthen nations and we will eventually um you know work our way out of extreme poverty um that's not something i've made up and i think that passion probably just shines through to people who share that objective Mm -hmm. and that goal right right um okay we're going to take a quick break
1: kate when we come back i want to um get right into the the launch of maverick collective and how this particular initiative and organization is is different from traditional models We'll be right back.
0: This is Kristen Hilsley, financial advisor of the Foley Hillsley Group, with a big announcement. Last fall, I hosted a Women's Lifestyle Conference to help the women who do it all take control of their finances. Now I'm excited to announce a new partnership with Women to Watch Media to help show women how to own their financial future. We'll have newsletter articles, blog posts, announcements of live events, and a lot more. All available at womentowatch.net and our own website, foleyhilsleygroup.com. I'm thrilled about this new partnership, and I look forward to being your resource for all things financial. Stay tuned to learn more or visit our website at foleyhilsleygroup.com. The Foley Hillsley Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird and Company, member SIPC. Log on to FoleyHillsleyGroup.com to learn more. That's F O L E Y H I L L S L E Y group.com. Or call 610 238 6636. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy.
1: I'm pleased to announce the opening of the region's newest, most innovative gynecology practice in the Philadelphia area in mid-November, Montgomery Gynecology. Led by Dr. Hema Janogada in a welcoming boutique-style setting, she and her team are committed to providing the highest standard of cutting-edge care without losing the personal touch that is so very important in today's world. With a particular interest in minimally invasive surgical options, Dr. Hema completed advanced training in robotic surgery and is one of only two surgeons in Montgomery County who performs this highly specialized single-site robotic surgery. For more information on the opening of this exciting new practice in the convenient Plymouth Meeting location, go to www.montgomerygyn.com or call 215 444 That's montgomerygyn.com or call 215-444-3411 to make an appointment today. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860 and womentowatch.net. My name is Sue Rocco, and I'm joined this afternoon by Kate Roberts. Again, Kate is the co founder of Maverick Collective and also senior vice president of PSI, which is one of the world's leading global health nonprofits. Uh, Kate, for, for, I wanted to ask you where the name Maverick Collective came from.
2: Oh, well, that's a great question. I have, first of all, it was originally called the Women's Investment Network. And that sounded to me like a mutual fund for women. (laughs) Um, So we didn't really like that. Um, Especially especially because this is more than money. It's way more than money or giving money. Mm -hmm. Um, And I used to refer to our members as Mavericks all the time. And one of our members said, well, why wouldn't we be the Mavericks? And that was too close to um, various things. Names will remain... um, silent but um other people have used in the past campaigns. And then we thought, you know what, this is a this is these are not just um members being Mavericks, this is a whole collective of other people. Mm-hmm. Um different NGOs, different governments, different sectors, the private sector and so on. It's truly a collective of Mavericks. So that's how it became Maverick Collective. Okay.
1: I always love to find, you know, out how, how names come to be. They usually say a lot about Um, an organization
2: um so one of the i would say say that if you look up the definition of a maverick Mm is disruption and for me we have disrupted the philanthropic sector in a good way Mm -hmm. and um and taken a business approach to solving problems and that to me is a maverick a disruptor who takes Private sector approach to solving problems.
1: Okay. Now, one of the things that you had learned that that kind of um, sparked your interest was in finding out that only eight percent of philanthropists were women, and 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 um, was that only eight percent globally or within a certain geographic?
2: Um, that actually, it wasn't eight percent of philanthropists were women. I was shocked that when I first went to Davos to the World Economic Forum, there was only 8% attendance by women, um, which is so shocking um, because women um, you know, should be taking a much greater role in business, not just philanthropy. Um, we're leaving a lot of resources on the table by not investing in women's talent in general. Right. And so I was shocked about that. And and I noticed at Davos, at the World Economic Forum, that philanthrop- women philanthropists weren't being invited onto the panels. It was always the sort of same men in gray suits or the traditionally women from the NGO sector that would get up and talk about these issues. And so I just noticed a lack of women philanthropists in general. Okay. And that, so
1: that was what prompted um, Bill Gates you know, you you had a discussion with him, and he said, you know, why don't you uh, partner with my wife, Melinda? And uh, that was really the catalyst for Maverick Collective.
2: Well, actually, what happened was I asked Bill to solve a problem, and the problem that I gave him was why why is money why are private dollars not flowing um, and You know, can you help us to solve this problem? And he basically said, you know, we deal with a lot of male philanthropists. They tend to have already decided what they're giving to. But why wouldn't you focus on female CEOs, philanthropists, wives, and also the children of, as in the next generation of philanthropists, where, you know, his comment was we're leaving so much resource on the table, not just money, but talent as well Mm -hmm. Um, and that's really how it all started and of course he then brought up Melinda and how he felt that Melinda would be very interested in this because she too really believes in women leadership and also developing new champions for the issues we really care about. So it was just a very natural fit um, and that's how it happened. Okay, so
1: Kate, we're, you know, often talking about uh, the need for women leading today, and uh, not only in C-suites and on boards, um, but throughout the world in, in all communities. Tell me what you personally believe we will see in the world should we have a higher number of women leading in other words, why why is it so important? Why are you know why are we doing the work that we're doing?
2: Well, um, I mean, I can I can give you some numbers that I think are very interested in the in the philanthropic sector. Of course, there's the rationale of why do you invest in girls and women in the developing world, especially the health and keeping them in school and their education. That's a no-brainer, right? Mm-hmm. We will we will lift nations out of poverty. Um, but you know, you can also look at it on the other end, that over the next, gosh, four, four forty years, women will inherit seventy percent of the forty-one trillion dollars in intergenerational wealth transfer. So, you know, that alone is a very good reason to focus on women and their leadership, um, but also if you if you look back at, if you look back into the back at the developing world, um, women make up seventy percent of the world's one point five billion people living in poverty, um, and um, there's also you know I think it's five trillion dollars worth of spending power at the bottom of the social economic pyramid. Um, And so women tend to make those decisions for the family. And so I'm a strong woman. Um, I definitely have noticed the need to fight greater as a woman leader than men have to still, which is disappointing, but it just is the state of affairs. And, um, you know, women, women lead with the heart and the brain. Um, simultaneously and so there's a lot to be said for that there's a lot to be said for great leadership skills um, engaging emotionally as well as professionally with your team Um, and I think women make decisions in a different way you know we are programmed to multitask and to juggle and um, I think that if we do not invest in women putting women in, in leadership roles we're doing the world a, a disservice. Yes. Cuz we can accomplish a lot.
1: That's right. That's right.
2: So, you know, the
1: things that you are doing uh with your organization are, are very actionable. Can you talk about, you know, specifically what some of those programs are and um where the money sure. is going?
2: Sure. Um well, first of all, Maverick Collective is it, it's not philanthropy as usual. Um we are the first ever community like it, that is currently 100% women. Um, that's not to say that we are not engaging men, we are. Um, but they are a group of smart, dedicated women who are all using their intellect, their voice, uh, their skills, and their financial resources to invest in um, different innovative health solutions that eventually can lift girls and women out of poverty. And So we don't see women as a checkbook um, or just a checkbook. We look beyond the money to help us to find solutions, to help us solve problems. And how it works is we promise to do three things. We are really interested in building informed advocates. Um, For instance, one of our members, her name is Indrani Goradia. She has been a uh, housewife. For 30 years, she has supported her husband, who's built a huge, multi-billion-dollar company. But very sadly, she was abused as a child by her own mother, and she, her whole life has has wanted to do something about ending gender-based violence. Mm. And so, after supporting her husband for 30 years, she said, "Now is my time." Um, But she had a small family foundation in Houston. And was reaching a few members of the community, and she really wanted to do something on great scale so this is how Maverick Collective has worked with her with our global network. PSI is our implementing partner PSI operates in about sixty countries around the world and we were able to really use her skills um, as well as her financial resources to scale what she wanted to do out of Houston across the world and so she has First of all, immediately her donation was doubled by the U.S. government, and she now has one of the largest, uh, it, it actually is the largest um, gender-based violence prevention project in India that really responded to a lot of the rapes and the awful, tragic events. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will have heard about the girl on the bus being raped gang raped mm-hmm. and uh, basically murdered and so many other awful things have happened in India. And so she now is teaching her seminars across the world. She just testified at the United Nations. She's doing TED Talks. And so we worked with her to be an informed advocate to use really transfer the skills that we have in the developing world, and also what we know about the issue, onto her so she can have a greater impact with her foundation. So the first thing we do is build informed advocates. And then, of course, we take those resources and invest in the promising solutions on the ground. So Indrani's project uh, is in in India and Trinidad, where she's originally from. Um, Others invest in different parts of Africa or Central America. It depends where we're going to get the most impact. And then the members themselves go and co-design the projects with the technical staff that PSI has and Maverick Collective has. Um, so that they really learn about the issues that they're investing in, so they can become informed advocates. Um, A really good uh, example of this was uh, one of our members, founding members, Pam Scott. Um, She has a company called The Curious Company, which focuses on human-centered design. And she wanted to use her skills in human-centered design around the issue of teen pregnancy prevention. So we chose together a project for Pam in Tanzania And within six months of her going to Tanzania, helping us with the human-centered design model, putting the young girl at the center of everything that we were doing, and based on her feedback, developing the projects that really speak to her, um, we were able to scale the project in three countries, Ethiopia, Nigeria, and, of course, Tanzania. And it's now a $31 million project. So we brought in... The Gates Foundation, we brought in CIF, the Children's Investment Fund out of London, uh, to really help us to scale the project. So we really look at leveraging that initial donation, as I was saying initially in our interview, where other players can then come in and help us to scale, you know, multiply the effect in different countries using different donations from our government donors or our private sector donors Um, But essentially, we'll take the learnings that the Maverick Collective Project has given us and then scale the solution. Okay. So um, we also inspire other women to, you know, we really have to change the way philanthropy is being done. And if we can really focus private philanthropists in the best way, we will not just have informed advocates who will then inspire on. But we will get to the finish, finishing line quicker around the sustainable development goals, um, which are very lofty goals, there's a lot of them, mm-hmm. um, and they were developed by the United Nations. And we're all working towards fixing those problems around you know, sanitation and HIV and family planning and uh, non-communicable disease like cancer, and diabetes, um, and so on. And so everyone needs to work in the right strategic way and we're helping individuals to do that in the best possible way mm. it's you know it's
1: it, uh, it's very overwhelming right when you think about all of the things that need attention and all of the causes and, and all of the work that needs to be done are you seeing impact can you you know articulate um, real impact that you're seeing and how it uh, how far we have come today as opposed to you know, years ago?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Over the last few years, um, I've seen, we've all seen a reduction in polio. Um, Bill Gates set upon himself and his foundation and his network uh, to end polio in his lifetime, and he's probably going to achieve that goal Um, through simple vaccinations, simple solutions um, to end problems. We have seen a remarkable decline in childhood deaths uh, under the age of five, which is the, the critical years, um, through nutritional programs, through malaria prevention. You know, the simplicity of putting a insecticide-treated mosquito net over a bed in Africa is, you know, will change the way that malaria progresses around the world. So we have an opportunity to end malaria uh, in our lifetime. The same with HIV, you know, we have the potential to have an AIDS-free generation. There is, most recently, a medication become available called PrEP, and it is a prevention, uh, it's, it's basically the same medicine that you, you use when you are HIV positive, um, but it's take you can take it as a precaution to contracting HIV. One of our Maverick Collective projects right now is to test this out in certain parts of Africa to see if we can get men engaged in taking the medication as mm-hmm. a prevention tool. So, you know, simple things like this mm-hmm. can end diseases in our lifetime. If we test out the strategies, test out the innovation, and then be smart in the way that partnerships come together mm-hmm. um, to, to scale these solutions. Um, but yeah, I mean, the you know, 250 million women I think it's now 240 million women, um, have, want access to modern contraception. They want to be able to space their births, and they do not currently have access. And so we need to make that access available and not just give one solution, right? It's not just the pill or it's not just the patch, um, to give multiple solutions because, you know, everybody wants, has different needs. And so we need to provide access to different methods of contraception, short acting and long acting. Um, you know, in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, adolescent girls account for 16% of all births. You know, some girls as young as 9, mm-hmm. 10, 11, 12 are getting pregnant. And you are not designed to have children at that age. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous and um an you know, two, estimated 2.2 million unintended pregnancies, and 25% of those are unsafe abortions. Um, so you know, the complications also resulting from pregnancy and childbirth are a leading cause of death amongst young teenagers who are aged uh, 15 to 19. So this all makes economic sense that if we can provide these much needed healthcare products and services, um, it will drastically in, increase our economic uh uh potential. Right. Yeah.
1: Um tell me how do you how do you attract your advocates? In other words, how do you, you know, get the message out to men and women who would be, you know, uh forces, forceful partners for you.
2: Mm. Um, we, uh, they either find us or we, you know, we're very, we're also quite selective. Mm -hmm. Um, Maverick Collective is not for everybody. Um, you really want to, it's important to want a hands-on approach. So we, we choose our members quite carefully. Um, and they come to us through various partnerships that we have. Um, there is a lot of interest right now, certainly in the U.S., um, to have an impact also around sexual reproductive health uh, with the current political changes. Um, and so we, we have a lot of partners who refer their clients or um, maybe somebody has read one of the news articles that has been written up on us mm-hmm. in the New York Times or Fast Company or Foreign Policy magazine. Um, and we have some partnerships with some banks that have philanthropy centers uh, like J.P. Morgan, um, who have referred some people. Okay, so there's yeah, there's various
1: um, various avenues for for people becoming aware of your work. Um, Kate, tell me, this is not a very creative question, but I think in in lieu of uh, the work that you're doing and how many different um, projects you're working on at once, I would love to know what a typical day is for you you know truly what you oh, do my. and and how you manage a day and all the email all, all the emails that are coming in your inbox
2: <laughs> well um I, I think like any working mother it is one big juggle right. and of course getting my daughter off to of school uh you know checking checking my emails over her cheerio bowl <laughs> <laughs> uh, getting getting juggling um the, the cell phone, I just don't know what we would do without it. Mm. Um, but I would say prioritizing, um, you know, spending time with our team. I have the most incredible team here at Maverick Collective. And I've always said this. I, it's not money that changes the world. It's it's people. Mm-hmm. And that's not just people who give money. that's the team that works here at Maverick Collective, the people that work within PSI who are just extraordinary, who do this work every single day in the trenches. Um and so my day will will be very much working with people um to really figure out who the champions are and how to give the best advice to those champions on how to cause Effect. Mm. I just had lunch with the Norwegian ambassador today, mm-hmm. or the, the US ambassador for Norway. Um, of course, uh, the Crown Princess of Norway is our co-founder and co-chair. Yes. And Norway is has been the most terrific government um, that's done a lot for women's rights. Norway is a beautiful place to live as a woman. <laughs> I think we can learn a lot from Norway. Um, And so my lunch today was really talking to him about how we can have a more effective partnership with Norway and how we can play our part, how our mavericks can play their part, how governments should play their part. Mm -hmm. And so most of my day is really figuring out the best use of everybody's time. And, um, And then I always try to take time to sort of... To think around my vision and more creative ideas and I feel a a little bit like Madonna where I constantly have to recreate myself (laughs) Um, you know okay you know what we're out
1: of time and I I think that's a great way to leave the show I thank you so so much for taking a full hour out of your day and we'll be sure to to share all of the information uh, around you the work you're doing and your website Continued success thank to you. you.
2: Thank you for the work that you do too,
1: highlighting women leaders. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Kate. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. Make it a good week.